I think a big part of it is, and this is what I think exhibitions do and are really good at doing, is bringing back artists that get lost or neglected somehow. They bring them back into the public imagination. And that's what the exhibition really, that was the intention as well. You know, these artists were a part of the community in a very big way. But for some reason, I think, because again, I think it's it's the way in which they're brought into the public imagination that becomes an important in how they are remembered and kept in people's memories that yeah the exhibition format i think really really offered that for me in a, in a powerful way welcome to the latest podcast in our arts research africa dialogue series these dialogues are intended to stimulate practice enable research and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in africa i'm professor christo doherty the head of arts research in the witz school of arts in this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Dr. Same Ngluli, who was the recipient of a 2020 ARA grant for her book project titled Transversing the Rural, Revisiting the Works of South African artist Johannes Mashecho Sechugela. Dr. Ngluli is the manager and chief curator of the Standard Bank Gallery in Johannesburg and an associate researcher in the Witt School of Arts. She's an artist, art historian and writer and holds a PhD in History of Art and an MA in Arts and Cultural Management, both from Witts University and a B.Tech degree in Fine Arts, cum laude, from the University of Johannesburg. She has worked as an administrator at the Goodman Gallery in Johannesburg and a number of other art projects and has also participated in international residencies, including the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles and the INHA in Paris. Her research interests are in contemporary African art, black expressive modes and aesthetics, as well as the conversations between jazz and visual art. Dr. Mluli also serves as an advisory council member for the South African Arts Council. When Dr. Mluli was appointed to manage the Standard Bank Gallery in 2018, the bank's head of brand sponsorships and events announced that Dr. Mluli brings a visionary energy to the role. She went on to say that we are convinced that Dr. Mluli will help us take the gallery to a new level of leadership as a stakeholder institution of the art industry in the country and beyond. Her leadership as a respected creative and academic, along with her easy accessibility, will surely help open the doors to more people to fall in love and support art in our country. All those qualities were very much in evidence during our conversation, which ranged from her work as curator to her engagement with the rural-urban divide in South African art to her analysis of the obstacles to real transformation in the South African art industry. Hi, Sami. Thanks very much for making the time to talk in this ARA podcast. And I was very specifically interested in the work that you were awarded an ARA grant to investigate and explore. And that's the project that you call Transversing the Rural. Would you like to tell us more about that and situate that in the broader context of curatorial intervention in South Africa? Thanks for having me, Krista. I'm very pleased to be part of this conversation. As you said, my application really was about, I've been looking at trying to extend aspects of my PhD. So my PhD thesis looked at, and I'm putting inverted commas, because in the actual thesis, I problematize the notion or the idea of the rural, particularly in 
speaking about these artists whose works I looked at as part of the PhD. And really what I was doing there was trying to determine and kind of figure out why it is that they kind of came into view at a particular time and then suddenly sort of just fizzled out of, you know, the public imagination. They came into, you know, the gallery system or the mainstream art landscape in the early 1980s, late 1980s. Um, and then towards, you know, the kind of dispensation of the new democracy, they kind of disappeared, although it didn't necessarily mean that they were not producing any artworks. But I guess with that political change came a kind of new trend, I suppose, that kind of pushed them back. So I was really trying to interrogate why that happened and where these artists are now. Some, of course, have since passed on. I looked at artists like Jackson Fawani, who's, who's late now, Mam Noria Mabasa, who's still alive, Nelson Makuba, who's, who's passed on. I think he, he, you know, he had a very tragic story of having committed suicide again, you know, it's something that I, I looked at because it, it's very much linked to this psychological battle that he had being part of a an urban, but also his, you know, going back to his roots in the rural place. So that kind of conflict between the two. And then for this grant, I decided to look at Johannes Sohohela, who passed on two years ago. But before he did, actually, as part of the PhD itself, I went down to Sukukune in, in Bopo, where he used to live and visited him for about three days or so and sat with him just to interview him about his works and how he got into the art world. Because, of course, Sohohela was one of the few ones other than, I think, Noria Mabasa and Jackson Tlongwani who actually were showing with commercial galleries, so really kind of selling their works to a, an art market. Sohohela was for a long time very much represented by Goodman Gallery, his works has been exhibited in kind of international museums and shows through Goodman Gallery. Some of his works sits in very important international collections. I remember one residency I was invited to in Los Angeles. I came across one of his works at the Fowler Museum, which was quite surprising to know that, you know, his works reached that far. So, so really in this grant, I'm trying to put together a kind of monograph of sort to extend the chapter that I wrote on him as part of my PhD. Right. Now, I'm really looking forward to the publication. Did you answer the question as to why these artists received this attention in really the last decade of the apartheid period and then seem to have kind of disappeared from that focus after democratic elections and the demise of apartheid, what kind of answers did you find in your PhD? I think that's the that's part of why I'm also extending it now with this kind of publication. It's because I think on some level, yes, I came to some answers. It had a lot to do with the way in which they were incorporated in the first place. For example, it was about assimilation and appropriation in, in some respects, but also I think something got lost. I think that was the, the big thing that I kind of came out with, was that in the process of these artists being included into the mainstream, a lot was lost in terms of why it is that they make the type of work that they do in the first place. It's informed, I think, by a set of social and political 
conditions that are very much different to what contemporary, well, they're also considered contemporary artists. That's the thing um, as well, you know, because they are, of course, working within a contemporary realm, although it's seen somehow as different to how urban artists are working and the kind of things that inform them. So, you know, somebody like Jackson Songwani, for example, is informed, you know, by a range of different socio-economic political references that he used very strongly in his work. However, there's this kind of, there was this kind of tendency of boxing them in a way into this kind of ethnographic, anthropological kind of notion. It presented limitations, let me put it that way, limitations in the way in which their work could be read, particularly in relation to the environments in which they were working. So Jorela, for example, his work is very religious. His early works, that is, very much references parables from the Bible, proverbs and, and things like that. But then his later work kind of starts to evolve and change and look at the changes in society his society at that, working in Zukukuni, but also he traveled in between these places, the urban and the so-called rural, where he'd make works and then kind of put them in his baki and, and drive down to Johannesburg to try and sell them and sell them to a, a different kind of market. So he was very much aware of the differences and the kind of implications of making work from one context and then moving to another context to sell them to a different a market. An artist like Nelson Makubu, for example, who started off making these muti kind of containers that were specifically for spiritual and traditional healers, also made, you know, a, a range of these kind of two art expressions that were targeted towards different markets. And in the one, on the one instance, the traditional containers were used primarily for a very specific purpose, which was for medicine, containing medicine, a very traditional kind of function. And then he would make kind of urban subjects like a ballet dancer or, you know, a couple dressed in Western attire dancing together. So this, for me, suggested that these artists were very much aware of where and what context they were working within and what that meant to their practice. That's a very interesting observation. And was your sense, which I know that you're continuing to obviously explore since your PhD, was your sense that these rural artists who are engaging in some ways with the urban art market, but are also engaging and speaking to their communities, rural communities, is your sense that those artists are providing perhaps an important signpost or indicator to how maybe a younger generation of contemporary black artists could engage with quite abstract concepts like decolonization? I mean, I think they were certainly trying to make a connection of some sort, if, if I can put it that way. I think there was a, a big realization that, you know, although they lived very much secluded from or the influences of the urban base, they were very much aware of the fact that these two are not, they exist kind of in a very fluid way. They depend on these two kind of existences in terms of being aware of the fact that the world is not static. Certainly culture is not static. I think that was the big thing, certainly in Sohohela's case. Because one of the things I also noticed in this 
project that I'm doing with a grant that I got in producing a publication is I've been looking very closely at images of his work and seeing the kind of evolution that has happened as a result of it being exposed to, to another, primarily a Western art market. And things like small nuances, like makes these little figurines of people in wood. In the beginning, they were made out of wood that he obviously sources in, in the area. And then he started slowly painting them with enamel paint. So there's color that's now introduced. The features start to change, for example, the features of the actual figures, which was quite fascinating for me. It was like some of the figures, their noses, for example, starts to protrude almost like a Western person's nose. Whereas before, when you look at earlier work, that was not so evident. So these are things, for example, you could see very clearly. He's starting to shape even his practice and the kind of characteristics his, his work is, is, is represented by to change it to suit a particular type of market, mainly, I suppose, a, a tourist uh, market. Although I think what really changed things for, for Sohokala was the fact that Linda Givon came across his works and then decided to, Linda Givon was the, you know, then the owner of Goodman Gallery, kind of elevated the work and moved it towards away from that tourist market and more towards a kind of collector-based international market, yeah. In your experience, I mean, particularly with the example of Linda Givon, do curators at that time, and particularly white curators, very powerful white curators in the 1980s, are they playing a, a very powerful role in repositioning and shaping artists such as Johannes Sikogela into an art market rather than into a tourist market or a traditional constituency of users? Definitely. You know, Sohorela's work, for example, is made up of these little scenes. So he has these figurines that are, yes, individualistic, but they tell a story and how they tell a story is that they're kind of in these little groupings. And an interesting thing about that was that he kind of, you know, left that up to the curator to do. Even the titling of, of the works itself would describe a scene, let's say the crucifix, for example. The basic elements would be there like a cross, Jesus on the cross, maybe the 12 disciples are there. But the way in which they are placed to make the scene would change over time because they're not kind of stuck on a piece of board. They're kind of these individual pieces that go together. And then once they're kind of exhibited, they're put together to tell this story. So that left room again for, you know, curators to basically interpret the work in, in any which way they deemed fit. Yeah. And in that movement, that journey from the ethnographic to the fine art contemporary market. Do you feel that these rural artists are being shaped perhaps too much by the white curators with an eye on what will signify and sell to their, their commercial markets? Definitely. And I think a large part of that was as a result of the language barriers. Somebody like Jackson Tlumwani, for example, who spoke Shangani slash Tsonga, the combination of the two, but I think he was mainly spoke Shangani and very little English. The barrier of him explaining exactly what the intention of his works are created limitations, I think, in relaying that to mostly white curators. And as a result, I think that's one of the reasons why 
Jackson's work was removed because his work was very site-specific. It was made as part of his teachings that, in, in the site that he, he created in, in Bogoto, which was a kind of a shrine of, of sort. Um, so it being moved from that context into a gallery context really did mean that something was lost along the way. We cannot deny that. I think that the, the works were very much, because of the way in which he, he created the works for a very specific function, it was very much very site-specific in terms of where it's placed, how it's understood, and by who. It's an absolutely fascinating question, and let's go back to it. But I wanted you to talk a bit about the first major exhibition that you curated at Standard Bank Gallery after being appointed as the manager and chief curator, and that was the exhibition A Black Aesthetic. And there you were concentrating on the early black modernists, such as Gerard Sokoto and George Pember, of course, and also Ernest Moncobo. Tell us about that exhibition, because these were much more consciously modernist artists, unlike the rurally based artists that you were dealing with in your PhD. Yes, I, I think it's important for me to also acknowledge that I came across these black modernist works while I was doing the, the research on the so-called rurals, right? Because at some point, there's somewhere the modernists draw on this kind of rural traditional aspects and and you see it in terms of the characteristics particularly in sculptural works carrying on that tradition of sculpting and carving and because these particular modernist artists had more formal training in art having gone to institutions such as poly street rocks drift what was then the Joburg Art Foundation, all these small art centers that were emerging at the time during the 80s informed, I think, the transition or the, the move towards this more modernist kind of approach. So having come across this during my PhD, I then had to kind of make a decision to park this aspect because it was very clearly, although there were kind of connections and meeting places, I could tell that it required a different kind of contemplation. And so I parked it for some time and was able to then revisit it through an exhibition format. And when I took up the position at Standard Bank, that offered me an opportunity to do so, not only because, one, I had a, the resources to do that, working for a gallery that's owned by a bank that has a budget and, and money. And then I approached the University of Forte because I had come across a publication that was written by E.J. Diego, who was then a, a professor in fine arts at the University of Fort Hare and put together this collection of predominantly, mainly, you know, almost exclusively Black artists, which I found interesting. I think it wasn't strange in, in the fact that the university itself was a is historically Black institution, one of the few in the country. So it, it didn't seem odd that they would have an art collection comprising of mainly exclusively Black artists. What I did find odd, though, is that it had almost been buried as this kind of lost archive that very few people knew about. And for me, it was then that I took the opportunity because some of these artists, you would see, you see them, you know, people like Dumile Feni, for example, certainly Gerard Sugota, were in circulation somehow. You know, you see their works in the auctions here and there in a few shows. 
But there were other names that I was just like, how come I've never come across these names ever? Is it because these artists stopped producing works or it just kind of in the same way as the so-called rural artists, they fizzled out because of a different set of circumstances. And I chose the exhibition format because I could have, for example, done exclusively just a, a publication to look at, to relook at this collection. I chose the exhibition format because I, 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 it, in my view, it was important firstly for it to be seen by a broader audience and a public, especially because, you know, the, the University of Forte is all the way in Alice and very few people would have the opportunity to go down there. Also, in Alice, at the university, it was kept in an archive, in a storage that was like locked away. Although the De Beers Art Gallery that's on site at the University of Forte was built specifically to house this collection, it's not being shown in that gallery. So this offered me the opportunity to do that. And so I motivated with the bank to get enough funds to pay for the transportation, pay for the insurance, pay for the installation. We even restored some works that needed a bit of reframing. But I must say, overall, I was quite impressed with the condition of the collection itself. I think the university has done a great job of looking after it. It's just that I think they needed kind of initiative that would get it out of the archives and really, really kind of spotlight and highlight its significance in the overall South African art landscape. Yeah, I was very interested in that because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Eastern Cape. I was at Rhodes and I, I was aware of this collection at Forte and have over the years made numerous attempts to go and visit the collection. <laughs> I've never been able to get access. You know, it's always been a case of either the university's closed when I go there, or if it's open, you know, whoever has the key isn't around, <laughs> isn't available. It's been terribly, terribly frustrating to me because, yeah, the reports and obviously your exhibition have kind of made me aware of what incredible resource that is in the, you know, remote part of the Eastern Cape. And what was the response to the exhibition? How did people relate to you excavating these works and, and making them available to an urban Johannesburg audience? Yeah, I was quite overwhelmed, to be honest, with the, the reception of these books. And it was because I think people also shared the same sentiments as I did, like I was saying, that they were coming across names that they had hardly come across before and it's not that these artists were not necessarily there i mean i remember there's a the revisions book that did quite an extensive because uh, i started collecting trying to collect some of the biographies around these artists and you'd come across a, a few of them there but i think a big part of it is and this is what i think exhibitions do and are really good at doing is bringing back artists that get lost or neglected somehow they bring them back into the public imagination and that's what the exhibition really, that was the intention as well. Um, an interesting thing that also kind of emerged from that was having some of the extended family members of the artist just come out of the woodworks, of, you know, and come in to see this because for the first time they're seeing their relatives' artwork in a major art gallery, for example, and not just, let's say, in some obscure little publication somewhere. So that was quite interesting. And then, a, of course, a generation of predominantly young Black people who were not aware that 
there were other black artists or that there is a tradition of visual art making amongst the black community although some you know for example i came across a young couple that you know they came to see the show and they're like we lived two streets down from Sydney Kumalo and we knew he was doing this art thing because he would put stuff outside and he even bought the house next door to make his studio in Soweto by the way so you know these artists were a part of the community in in a very big way but for some reason i think because again i think it's it's the way in which they're brought into the public imagination that becomes an imp- important in how they are remembered and and kept in people's memories that yeah the exhibition format i think really really offered that for me in a in a powerful way some you've spoken about your phrases the precarious inclusion of black african artists within south african art history do you feel it's still precarious or do you feel that the work is being done to establish them in a much more fundamental way through exhibitions such as the black aesthetic in some respects i think there is work being done but i think the scholarship relies on having material and that's part of the limitations is that there aren't enough published books there aren't enough published articles for example by scholars that look intensely and deeply at what these artists were trying to do and and that's really what i was also trying to encourage i was trying to say that they've been numerous gerard sokoto exhibitions he's got a few publications that have been done on him the next person i suppose would be dumile feni for example but there are very few and so for me it was the way of trying to encourage and say what about you look at winston saudi for example there are bits and pieces of his works scattered in collections all over south africa from museeko to pretoria art museum to jag and yet for some reason there isn't one publication on winston saudi and and so in in some sense i think that was the intention in trying to encourage scholars to really try and start unpacking what it is individually right i mean i think that was also part of the contradictions that i was dealing with the fact that i presented these artists in a group show and yet i was advocating for us and scholars to look at them individualistically in terms of what each artist is doing or preoccupied with but those are the things i think it's important to acknowledge as well that in in some respect you might be trying to do one thing but you know the the method and the means in which you you do it presents all these kind of contradictions as well and that group of artists that you were concentrating on what seems to have been fundamental to them or what they had in common was this engagement with modernism as a universal language and were aspiring to that level of universality in their work rather than a regional or a ethnic or a racial specificity how relevant do you think that is for contemporary young black artists who've come through postmodernism who have come through very strong engagement with identity politics with black consciousness do you think there's still relevant lessons from that generation of black modernists yeah definitely i think one of the things i also battled with was the use of the word black because again 
it does the same thing as, for example, speaking about an artist and saying, you know, this artist is an African artist. Why can't he just not be an artist? And that's a debate I think that's been ongoing in terms of that, that artists themselves have been grappling with in terms of same as, for example, women artists and the way in which they, they insist on being seen or talked about as artists. Why should they be the suffix of women before, you know, the artists? But in some cases, there are artists that find that as an important distinction to make because it defines or even informs the nature and, and what inspires their works in very particular ways. So I think, yeah, it definitely is relevant in that regard, because I think it's asking younger artists to really question their positionality around where it is they are placing themselves in terms of how they define what it is that they are doing. And to ask those questions in a very critical way that is not about, you know, being dismissive, but really kind of weighing up right, the two sides of the coin, so to speak, where you are aware of the pitfalls of what is the results of, you know, labeling yourself in a particular way, as opposed to having no label and what that does in terms of propelling and progressing your your practice or your works. So certainly in, in that regard, I think, yeah, there are lessons for current younger contemporary artists to look at, yeah. Thank you. Now I'd like you just to think a bit about the art industry in South Africa. You were one of the founders and leaders of the Sosisame Gallery in Melville, which was very much aimed at young black artists, bringing them into the art world. I think in some ways you, you actually had mentoring schemes involved in the exhibition and curatorial practice there. And then, of course, you moved to the Standard Bank Gallery, which in some ways is the sort of apex of the corporate-sponsored art world. And you have commented, I know, in the past about the fact that in your view, although there have been black artists and there are more black artists who are being represented, that the art industry hasn't fundamentally changed in South Africa. Can you expand on that? Particularly, you you have this unique experience both in an avant-garde young gallery run by a collective and, of course, the Standard Bank Gallery, you know, the towering heights (laughs) of the art industry. Just your thoughts and maybe to expand on how the art industry hasn't changed and why not and how it could. Yeah, I don't necessarily also hold that position anymore. I think in the past four or five years, I've certainly seen changes in terms of how accessing art, for example, has fundamentally changed. And that really is because of social media, just as one platform on one hand and the way in which I think audiences are able to consume and access artists and for artists, the way in which they promote themselves. They no longer have to rely on galleries, so to speak. And that's kind of fundamentally very evident with where we are right now, particularly, I think, with COVID and the reliance of online-based platforms currently. In the past six months or so, I've been kind of looking at this and thinking about, well, this is a big shift in thinking about how going forward, this is going to change the way in which we consume art. So that's on one level. But the other level, I think, has to do with, like you're saying, the establishment. And the establishment, I'm talking, I think, about all these aspects that make up what we call the art market. So, you know, art schools, in terms of c- curriculum and who who has access to formal training and education, 
gallery system, art dealers, auction houses, because all of this, I think, is a chain. Art fairs, which are, you know, right now very big in terms of how artists promote themselves and what platforms are available to them. All of this is connected in some way, I think, in the way in which the art market or the art landscape functions. And I think fundamentally, those things haven't changed in terms of the valuing of artists or who is valued in that regard. And by valuing, I'm not just talking about in a monetary sense. I'm also referring to in a canon kind of way, right, of who gets written about in what and in what way they get written about, whose works is kind of engaged with at a scholarly level that elevates their work to a much more kind of prestigious, more appreciated kind of position. And those things, I think, are part of what I wish younger artists could be aware of. Now that I'm at Standard Bank Gallery, I get so many requests and emails from younger artists wanting to have an exhibition at the gallery. And it's very difficult for me to explain to them how the process kind of works in terms of what would get you to be shown at a gallery such as Standard Bank Gallery. And it's not just about being established, really. It's about a kind of a general consciousness and awareness of that there are all these aspects that make up being an artist, that you can't just be doing it for for the fame, for example. And it's not a one-time kind of one-hit wonder thing. It's a lifetime commitment to various aspects of becoming an artist and truly living um, um, in, in, in that way. So... Yeah, it's a very complex, I think, profession being in the art world. And really, there isn't a manual. I always say to the young artists that want advice or mentorship that there really isn't a manual that you can give them and say, this is how you become a successful artist. And each artist has a different trajectory of how they got to where they are right now. So that's always a challenge. I'm feeling hopeful, I think, for the future except that I would like to see, I think, a lot more rigorous engagement in terms of writings and publications. And that's something I also try and encourage young artists to do as early as possible. I mean, I think there's a need to want to make money and make a living at the end of the day. But if at the end of producing a body of work, you have nothing left to show for it, try and invest in making um a, a kind of something that you will leave behind that will then serve as a kind of continuation that somebody can then pick up and say, at this point, this artist did this. How can we expand upon it? So, yeah, very few of them kind of listen to that advice because at the end of the day, I think, like everything else, people are being driven by money. <laughs> are you saying that young artists need to articulate themselves, not just produce the works they need to be writing about the works or writing manifestos or actually presenting a context of meaning in which their work can be understood and interpreted? Yes, definitely. And I was very struck by the first few weeks we went into lockdown and then seeing just by kind of observing my social media posts and, and platforms who was kind of responding or using this moment of uh, and talking about this moment of being in lockdown and in isolation as 
a time to produce work. For me, I kind of resisted that. And I was kind of saying to a friend of mine that I don't think it's the right time to produce work, to be honest. It's certainly not for myself, but I wouldn't advise an artist to be making art, especially in the first few weeks of lockdown. What I did feel was important to happen was, yes, it might not also be a good time to reflect, but it was offering a moment to think differently about one's position and practice. And perhaps it was about trying to think about what other ways can I articulate my ideas other than immediately rushing to wanting to create and respond to the moment. And so, for example, it could be that if you're a painter, why not, you know, start writing poetry, for example, as a response to that. And those were the instances in which, yeah, I felt that many artists could have used the opportunity to not be reactive, but rather to kind of look yeah, a little bit deeper about what the moment was offering. No, I hear that. It will be very exciting to, in the aftermath of this lockdown, to see what artists have done that kind of alternative reflection on their practice and their positionality. Sami, if I can ask really uh, the last question I'd, I'd really like you to reflect on is in your work as curator and particularly your work with rural artists, you've described their practices as challenges to Western epistemological frameworks of understanding art. And for me, that resonates a lot with the project in Aura, which is to encourage the use of artistic practice to produce new forms of knowledge. Essentially, you know, what sometimes called artistic research or practice-based research. Could you reflect or expand upon how the artists that you've been curating and analyzing, how that work in its actual practice challenges settled the Western epistemological frameworks? I think I'll, I'll use Johannes Sorokela again as an example because the focus of the grant and what I'm developing is part of that. One of the things that struck me when I went to visit him was the fact that he didn't have a studio. So a space kind of, I mean, yes, he had a space dedicated to where he made these works and these, these sculptural works, but it was quite simply a tree with a little table and he had built this a small square of concrete with a spirit leveler to make sure that the sculptures stand. And that was it. And it was next to a little crawl where he had some goats and sheep in it, about small little kids of goats. And I found that fascinating because, you know, when you see the work in a gallery space, immediately the assumption is that it's being produced in some sort of studio space where he has all these fancy and sophisticated tools to make the work. And that wasn't the case. This was one of the things that was kind of glaring at me in terms of the differences in the approach in which these artists take to making their work, that not only is it created under a different set of circumstances and context, but the actual tools that they use and mediums and approach is very, very different and doesn't require, for example, this sort of sophisticated 
approach that tends to be associated with Western art making, where the artist is kind of left in isolation and sits in a studio space with all kinds of machinery and tools that they use. Same with Jackson Songwani, for example. I went to see a show that they had at the Polokwane Art Museum. And as part of the display of his artworks, there was a, a display box with his tools in it. And I mean, these tools were quite fascinating because not only did they look, they were handmade. He basically made them according to his needs. So he didn't go to an art shop, for example, and buy a tool to make. And that, again, flipped the way in which I understood this approach of art making. That So the artwork itself informs the kind of tool he's going to make to start carving and producing the work, as opposed to it being the other way around of trying to find, you know, a tool in a shop or in an artwork. So those kinds of, I think, dynamics are what stood out for me in terms of this this aspect of challenging the Western concept of art making. Yeah. Somi, thank you very much. I mean, it's been a fascinating discussion and we really look forward to your book, on Sekukela and the further work that you're going to do as a curator at the Standard Bank Gallery. So we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much, Christoph, for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christoph Doherty, the Head of Arts Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Dr. Salma Ndluli, Manager and Chief Curator of the Standard Bank Art Gallery and an associate researcher in the Witt School of Arts. The podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witt Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.